Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Ideas Center at the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Chris Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment, recording from our studio in Washington, D.C., And I'm your co-host, Shanti Kalatal, Senior Director of NED's International Forum for Democratic Studies. While corruption poses a persistent challenge in most societies, its scope and impact can be kept in check through a country's internal accountability and transparency mechanisms, including independent media, civil society, impartial courts, and legislative oversight. Kleptocracy, meanwhile, is a system in which public institutions are used for a purpose that's different to enable a network of kleptocratic elites to steal funds for their own private gain. In such instances, internal checks on power are neutralized. The state is captured by narrow interests who use the global financial system to launder and protect their ill-gotten gains. This international dimension of modern kleptocracy creates a complex problem that requires new, more sophisticated responses. And in recent years, the term kleptocracy has grabbed attention in ways that are distinctive from its prior appearances. Today, barely a week passes without some new revelation in the headlines. Russian officials and oligarchs with extraordinary lifestyles and luxurious homes in the poshest settings in Europe. Chinese political leaders and their family members sending millions of dollars overseas. Family members of African tyrants flaunting their sports cars and other extravagant possessions as they enjoy the protections afforded by countries that observe the rule of law. Globalization and the ease with which money can flow through the financial system facilitates kleptocracy, dampening the prospects for accountability in the countries where the theft occurs and ultimately corroding and degrading democracy and rules-based institution where the money ends up. This money is borderless, making it difficult for law enforcement, which is limited by national boundaries, to stop it. To shed further light on the phenomenon of transnational kleptocracy and the tension between borderless money and bordered states, we're pleased to welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast Oliver Bolo, an award-winning journalist, author, and commentator specializing in the former Soviet Union and illicit money flows, and the author of Moneyland, the inside story of the crooks and kleptocrats who rule the world, which was named an Economist Book of the Year. Oliver, we're delighted to have you for today's discussion, which in a riff on your title, we've called uh, Dictators in Moneyland. So welcome, Oliver. Thank you very much for inviting me. And Oliver, in thinking about what you've referred to as the dark side of globalization, what are the most important things that we need to understand in the context of modern kleptocracy? I think it's very important to understand that kleptocracy and corruption are different. Uh, Corruption has always been with us. I think ever since there's been power, people have abused their power. That is, you know, sadly seems to be baked into human nature. Kleptocracy, however is a relatively recent phenomenon. It it appeared in the 1960s um, with the birth of offshore finance. So what kleptocracy is, is a hybrid between a globalized financial system and corrupt officials. So previously, corrupt officials could steal money, but there wasn't much they could do with it once they'd stolen it. They could bury it in a hole in the ground, or if they spent it, it was kind of obvious what they were up to. But thanks to the anonymity and convenience provided by uh, the globalized financial system, now they're able 
to steal money, send it offshore, um, you know, bounce it around between a few jurisdictions, get their fingerprints off it, and then spend it on whatever it is they want, whether that's a, a yacht in the Netherlands or a condo in New York or, or a mansion in Malibu or, or, or a nice terraced house in Eaton Square in London or whatever. Um, you know, that's the, that's the amazing power of the financial system is it connects crooks and thieves who rule, sadly, so many um, developing countries with the great wealth havens of, of, of the West. And this is, a, like I say, a, a, a modern phenomenon. It's, it's, it's a relatively recent thing, and we're still really grappling with what it means. And what you've just described really speaks to the, the network dimension of this phenomenon. In a sense, it sounds like the kleptocrats have formed quite resilient networks. What's your sense of how the response to this networked aspect of kleptocracy has developed so far? Uh, so far, very weakly. I think um, much more of the public understanding of corruption is informed by um, publications like Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index, which treats corruption as, as something discrete within a country. You know, if you go to country A, uh, Denmark, say, you won't get shaken down for a bribe on the street. If you go to country B, um, Azerbaijan, then perhaps you will. Um, and therefore, Denmark gets a high score on the index and Azerbaijan gets a low score. You know, that's the, the sort of the general public understanding of corruption. But actually, if you look at how corruption works, um, you know, the ruling family of Azerbaijan steals hundreds of millions of dollars, washes them offshore via a Danish bank, Danske Bank, whatever, and then spends them on, you know, property in Dubai or, or influence in Washington or London or, or whatever it is that they wish to spend their money on producing movies, you know, anything. Um, so it is an tra inherently transnational uh, institution, kleptocracy. It, it always involves more than one jurisdiction. It exists between jurisdictions. And I think the world has been very, very slow at understanding that and is an only now catching up on it. And so much, um, these, these networks are so established. Um, you know, they're kind of a plug-and-play networks. Any, anyone can plug into them. They're so established that it's very difficult to disrupt them. So in your book, you write, modern kleptocracy is not just a question of stealing anything that's not nailed down. It also consists of magicking those assets into the liminal offshore world where laws are negotiable and the police cannot follow. So a couple of questions on that. First, I, I was wondering if you could briefly tell the story of offshore, which you mentioned in your book and which is fascinating, and why that's so fundamental to the conception of kleptocracy and why it's important to that. Um, offshore was a was a creation of board bankers in the city of London in the late 1950s and early 1960s, essentially after the decline of the British Empire and because of the post-war financial architecture of the world. Um, London went from being the world's leading financial uh, centre to a rapidly declining uh, second-tier financial centre. Um, you know, Wall Street had taken over London's previous role as the sort of financier of the world. Um, and there were bankers in London who essentially remembered how things used to be and were very much bored with the the new order and looked around essentially for a way to, to make money, for a new way of trading. Um, and what they did um, is they they essentially identified that there was a large volume of cash sitting in Switzerland, essentially primarily kleptocratic cash and tax dodging cash, which had just been put in, parked in Swiss banks and wasn't really doing anything. And they had kind of came to this equation, well, look, there's a lot of money not doing anything, and we've got a lot of bankers who aren't doing anything. Can't we bankers do something with that money? And then we'll both be put to work. Um, what they created was essentially by, by a clever mixture of little bits of different countries' regulations into, into one unit. They created uh, the what called the euro markets initially, the euro currency markets, and then the euro bond markets, which were unregulated spaces. Um, they existed geographically in London, 
but they were not covered by British regulations. And uh, they, though they were trading in dollars because it wasn't happening geographically within the United States, the Fed had no jurisdiction over it. So essentially, you, they created a shadow or parallel financial system that existed outside of the regulations at the time. And that gave um, kleptocrats and tax dodgers alike the space they needed to essentially um, not just steal money, but then to move that money freely and to profit from the money they'd stolen. And this gave a great impetus to kleptocrats to steal, because if you can if you, you can not only steal, but enjoy the fruits of your theft, then obviously you're much more likely to steal. So this is when, if you look at any kind of statistics for the growth of the amount of money held offshore, it always starts in the, in the early to mid 1960s. And then if you look at the kind of um, the really serious, the the really sort of egregious kleptocratic thefts, they start at the same time. Um, Sani Abacha in, in Nigeria, uh, the Marcos family in the Philippines, um, obviously the, the looting of, of the countries of South America. Um, you, you see that, that this tendency, particularly in, in ex-colonies, begins in the 1960s and then really just picks up sort of essentially in a very steep curve up to in the 1990s, obviously the former Soviet Union, then in the 2000s, China, and then you know up to scandals like the 1MDB scandal in Malaysia since then. So you know, offshore, it remains what it always was, which is essentially a, um, a, a sort of anteroom of the global financial system when where there are no regulations. So global finance continues in a regulated way, and then you step through a different door, you're still in the same place. And, and you've created a kind of legal space, a legal fiction, where you, you're kind of claiming that it's all taking place somewhere else. Because that's what offshore means. It, it, we think of offshore as meaning perhaps a Caribbean island or perhaps a, you know, an, an island in the English Channel or perhaps Singapore. It isn't that because offshore isn't there either. Offshore is always somewhere else. And in this way, I, you know, in my head as I try to conceptualize, and you, you sort of, that's essentially what you mean by money land, right? It's sort of this liminal world where it's sort of a shadow world that looks like our world, but anything goes. And you talk about how the laws are negotiable, police can't follow there. Um, why is that? I mean, we, you know, we, we'd like to explore why there, there seems to be an attempt to rein in these kleptocratic practices, and yet... Um, in this case, borders actually do seem to matter for law enforcement, at least. Yeah, so so globalization is incomplete, essentially. What we have is a globalized financial system, but a, but a still a national level enforcement system. So um, money can go wherever it likes, but, but the laws don't follow it. So inevitably, what that means is, therefore, you can move your money to wherever it will be best treated. Um, and this is what Moneyland is, is. Moneyland is essentially the the what what you get if you can put your money wherever you want and therefore you can essentially pick and choose what laws your money lives under but um one thing i'd keen to make clear in the book is that offshore isn't just something available for money you can put anything offshore um if you if you're living in in ukraine you're a government minister in ukraine you're looting the the education system you don't want your children to have to live in and study in that education system if you put your children at school in england your children are offshore if you wish to you know travel to see your children but you don't want to have to bother getting a visa you can buy a visa from St Kitts and Nevis or Malta or Cyprus or Dominica or a number of other countries at that point your citizenship is offshore so offshore is a, is a is a eminently expandable concept that can take in almost anything if you if you sue a business rival in the commercial court in London or in Stockholm your then justice is offshore um if you sue a journalist who writes about you in London then your reputation is offshore. It's 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 a much bigger concept than we normally give it credit for. Moneyland is is not just about money. Moneyland is a place where rich people go to put everything which they want to keep safe. And you note that uh, Moneyland is not just about money. And you describe the 
in essence, the technical mechanisms to move the money from point A away from point A to a safer place in the view of the kleptocrats who do this. But perhaps you could say a word about the knock-on effects of the kleptocratic resources entering um, different ecosystems. It's not benign. It's not neutral. It actually starts to shape things. And you might talk about um, what you mentioned in the book, uh, among other things, this feedback loop in curbing free expression that occurs when um, the bad money starts to find its way into open societies and rule of law environments. I mean, the, the first thing to, to mention is is the extraordinarily negative impact this has on the origin countries. Kleptocracy is a scourge in countries like Ukraine, obviously, Angola, Nigeria, Malaysia. This is this money is supposed to be paying for schools. It's supposed to be paying for police officers' salaries. It's supposed to be building roads, building hospitals, paying for soldiers, buying weaponry. Everything that a country needs to keep itself safe and prosperous and secure, this money is being stolen. So the first point is, at that end of the of the pipeline, it is a disaster. Um, and, and, you know, there is nothing good about it at all. Um, at the other end of the pipeline, it is also bad. Um, if you see the impact on on the housing markets in the places where the money ends up in New York, um, you know, it has helped inflate prices in Manhattan beyond the reach of any average New Yorker. The same in London, the same in, in places in the south of France or in Paris. Um, so in, in that regard, it drives inequality in the, in the wealth havens as well. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the point is that, that any kleptocrat, um, they, they don't, they're not happy living in the ruins of the country which they've looted. They want to live you know, where their money is. They want to live somewhere nice, whether that's Zurich or, or Cannes or Monaco or London or wherever, um, New York, Los Angeles. You know, so they wish to live in a, in, a, in a prosperous Western rule of law country because they don't want to be subject to the, to the problems that they've created. Um, but that then causes a problem because almost all of these countries, certainly traditionally all of these wealth haven countries, have also been democracy, democracies, open societies, and therefore journalists will write about you. You know, if you are a kleptocrat and you turn up and you start splashing your cash around, journalists want to write about you, and that is a problem. So how do you solve that problem? Well, fortunately, the enablers of Moneyland have a solution, which is the, you know based on, on British defamation law, which is very strict. Um, so all you have to do is establish a reputation in the UK as a perhaps a philanthropist. You can give money to a, a museum or money to an art gallery, money to a university. Make sure that that's publicised. Have a foundation. Get a few members of the House of Lords on the on the board. Um, and therefore, it makes it very very hard for any journalist to write about you because if you if you are written about in a negative way, then your reputation is harmed and you can sue. Um, they're not. The point isn't so much that you might win the court case. But the point is that it will cost the journalists so much just to prepare for the court case that essentially you, you, they will be outgunned. It's rather like you're playing poker against someone with a giant pile of chips and you've only got two chips. It doesn't really matter that you've got a royal flush in your hand. You might win this hand, but the next one you're going to lose. Um, I mean, at the moment, there is a uh, the, the book Billion Dollar Whale about the 1MDB scandal by two Wall Street Journal journalists um, is about to be published in the UK. It was published a year ago in the US. And the reason for the delay is that a, a very well-resourced London law firm acting for the primary villain of the book, um, a guy called Joe Lowe, who's currently hiding in China, he has retained a London law firm to essentially um, write extremely strongly worded letters to, to any bookseller, any publisher, anyone in the UK saying, if you touch this, you'll take you to the cleaners. And this is an industry which then has this knock-on effect, this, the feedback loop that you mentioned, which is that if journalists don't write about these people, 
then law enforcement often doesn't find out about them. You know, this is journalists are a key source for law enforcement and law enforcement can't prosecute these people. Then um, these people don't get convicted. And if they don't get convicted, journalists can't write about them because, you know, it's the conviction of someone is a, is a, is a moment when you can write about them. So you end up with people who should be um, disgraced, people who should be prosecuted, essentially getting away scot-free because of the, the way that Moneyland and the, sort of the, the reputation launderers of Moneyland keep people safe. So you've described a fascinating phenomenon because I think the way we've traditionally understood corruption, especially in these developing countries with authoritarian systems, is that, okay, you have these corrupt leaders at the top and they essentially corrupt all the institutions of accountability within their own country so that they themselves will not be brought to justice. But if we understand this as a more transnational process and one that's been globalized to essentially um, operate across borders and you have these authoritarian leaders looting the money and then stashing it in other places and also then going after institutions of accountability in the places where they choose to park their money and park their assets. You have, in essence, um, sort of a, this degradation of accountability that also follows them across borders. It's no longer confined to these authoritarian countries that they have looted. I mean, there's always been corruption, obviously. Um, you know, your country used to be corrupt. My country used to be corrupt. All countries were corrupt at one time. You know, the rule of law was built very slowly by, in, in many increments, by battles between brave courts and politicians, between brave journalists and politicians for, for hundreds of years. And we came to this point very slowly. The reason why we were able to have that fight and why we were able to eventually win and build a rule of law jurisdiction was because the money stayed put. So if someone was corrupt and committed a crime, they could be prosecuted and they could lose the assets. So essentially, you you know, it was it was a kind of a fair fight. Everything took place within one jurisdiction. The problem that offshore has created for all of these countries that are trying to follow the path that the UK and the US and other Western countries followed is that they want to democratize too. They want to build prosperity and the rule of law too. But it isn't a fair fight anymore because the, the rulers of the countries, the corrupt people who are stealing all the money, they have far, far more tools at their disposal than anyone opposing them. You know, and even if they lose, if it, like in Ukraine, there's a popular uprising and the kleptocrats get driven out, the money's gone. Yeah, you know, they get to keep the money. So it, it's um, it. What offshore has done is it has um, essentially changed the calculation, changed the calculus that is at the basis of political development. You know, we talk about countries as developing countries and countries as developed countries as if there is a train track that leads people, you know, a, a country from one state to the other. That's no longer the case. The train track is broken. Um, instead, we have a, a different destination, the kleptocracy, which is where these countries will now end up. And, and that is a, a, you know uncharted territory. We don't know what that means. We don't know how you, how you reverse out of that siding and end up back on the track that, that we'd like them to be following. And it's a, it's a very, very serious um, situation. And like I say, something which I think has been significantly underappreciated, if appreciated at all. And in some respects, I, the, to the extent that these practices are being diffused from the places where there isn't accountability and free expression into environments that we have assumed should always have that to some degree. What sort of things, in your view, need to happen in the coming period that haven't happened to date, in part because of an underappreciation of the problem, in part because some of the structures that have been established weren't really designed for this sort of thing? But taking all that into account, what would you say... Um, interested parties and those who want to see a better outcomes should really be focused on at this point? It's absolutely crucial that we know who owns what. Um, you know, shell companies are 
you know, the the architecture, the structure of Moneyland, you know, without shell companies or anonymous corporate structures of many kinds, not just shell companies, but also partnerships and trusts and so on, you know, without them, Moneyland would fall away. It is an anonymity of ownership that allows you to hide your money. Um, so that is crucial. The um, understanding who owns what public beneficial ownership is best. But if you can't have that, at least a, a central register of beneficial ownership, as the new um, bill that's currently in Congress here is arguing for, um, you know, that is very important, because then you can see if someone owns more than they've earned, then they're quite clearly, you know, there is questions that need to be answered. And the, the second one is, and I think this is as important, in fact, possibly more important, is enforcement of the laws we already have. Um, you know, particularly in European countries, enforcement has been pathetic, you know. Um, and if there is no downside to breaking the law, if there's no downside to helping people steal money, even if it's illegal, but you're not going to get caught, and if you're going to get caught, you're not going to get prosecuted, then there's just no reason for people not to engage in this behaviour. I mean, it's it's you see it across the spectrum of human behaviour. Um, you know, if you know, enforcement does not exist, then bad behavior becomes normalized. And once it becomes normalized, it's very, very hard to change that. So that dial needs to be forced back again. You know, and I do think, you know, a small number of high profile prosecutions would would change people's behavior in a big way. No one wants to go to jail. It, no one wants to be publicly disgraced. You know, it makes a big, if, big difference. If you look at the way, you know, relatively small number of big prosecutions of international banks by the DOJ change the behavior of of big players in the financial system, you know, that that has, it's been very effective. You know, the same could work with lawyers, the same could work with accountants. Um, so those two strands are what we really need. One is proper, um, uh, reliable ownership registries, and um, ideally public. And the second one is for people who commit crimes and people who help others commit crimes to be properly prosecuted and, and prosecuted you know, and and treated very seriously by the law, not not just made to pay a fine. You know, they you know, when if punishable by fine is a is a sentence that translates as legal for rich people. Um, no, people need to go to jail, and and you know that's in the same way that that um, you'd prosecute any other serious crime against society. And presumably, to effectuate these sorts of things, we also need the sort of um, groups and figures and institutions that can adapt and deal with these issues as they invariably will change themselves. So the, I think you point this out in the book, Oliver, that um, there's a lowest common denominator effect in essence now where the money will move, where circumstances allow, which is a form of adaptation in a sense. And to the extent that we haven't come to grips with the transnational aspect of kleptocracy, one would imagine that we also need to rethink the sort of instruments at our disposal and groups that are working on this in order to adapt to these new challenges. Yeah, I mean, Moneyland is, is endlessly mutable. So if one jurisdiction starts treating money less generously than it did previously, then the money will leave and go somewhere else. Um, or, or if another country undercuts the first jurisdiction and starts treating money more generously, the money will go there. Um, it's, it's a constantly shape-shifting or, you know, in sort of setup. Um, I mean, we saw this after the, the financial crisis, when in order to essentially force Switzerland to stop um, allowing mass scale tax dodging by US taxpayers, um, Congress passed the Foreign, Foreign Accounts Tax Compliance Act, um, which, you know, imposed transparency on foreign financial institutions and did it very successfully. Um, 
the, the, the world copied it by bringing in the common reporting standard, which is multilateral, but FATCA is only unilateral. What that means is that if you put your money in America, you don't need to tell anyone, whereas if you put it anywhere else, you do. So a lot of that money responded, Moneyland responded, by moving money out of Switzerland and moving it into the US. So this has been an absolute boon to the financial sectors of states like uh, South Dakota, Wyoming, Nevada, you know, places with, with developed trust industries here in the US have done very well out of this. And, and that, that then poses a new challenge in that you've gained a whole new groups of interested parties who, who like the status quo, don't want it to change in places like South Dakota. I mean, it was tough um, combating Switzerland. It will be just as tough combating South Dakota. So this is a problem in that, that you know, there is always an opportunity. There is always somewhere that is more generous than other places. And, and we need to be aware of that and keep looking at, you know, where the money's going, follow the money all the time, and you can see where Moneyland is. You know, this this battle, essentially, because of the setup of the world, this partial globalization, globalization of money, but not of laws and regulation, Moneyland will always be with us in one way or another. But it's a function of the way the world now works. And the question is, is trying to make it smaller and smaller and, and, and less and less dangerous. And, and that can be achieved, but it will be, we need to be constantly vigilant. This battle, you know, with the current setup of world regulations, this, this battle can never be won, but it can be, you know, we can be on the front foot instead of on the back foot. You know, it strikes me that the one way of combating this kind of networked kleptocracy is not simply through a patchwork of nationally bounded laws and regulation. It's also trying to find methods of accountability that rely on, for instance, journalism, network journalism, which, you know, your book is one example of um, a very uh, deep dive into how money crosses borders, and you were able to dedicate time to do that and so on. And I'm wondering if there's, you know, just in the way that you describe the ways that current indices don't really capture this networked, globalized form of kleptocracy, um, current reporting tends to be on, okay, this, you know, this country is corrupt, here's a story of corruption that happened in this country, and then the story stops there. And what we're starting to see emerge more and more is a way to connect those dots across borders, and you start to see these efforts like the Panama Papers and so on that do try to tell the story of kleptocracy. And I wonder what your thoughts are on how, I suppose, apart from law enforcement, um, civil society activists and so on can essentially take a cue from that shape-shifting nature of kleptocracy and try to shift their own shape in response to it. Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, a, a transnational problem requires a transnational solution. And the solution that the you know ICIJ and other journalistic groups like the OCCRP have done of working in groups across borders, coordinating tightly to make sure that they understand that they're able to go everywhere where the money goes is 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 brilliant and marvelous. Yeah, the Panama Papers stories and, and other similar ones have, have been revelatory in terms of describing how money behaves, how people hide it, how the enablers of kleptocracy work. Um, but that cannot replace proper enforcement action, at least partly because journalists, if they are costing kleptocrats money, are astonishingly vulnerable. You just need to see, for example, the treatment of Khadija Ismailova in Azerbaijan, um, and you know other journalists in in Russia have been treated, you know, similarly badly. Um, you know, if you are costing essentially what is essentially a mafia operation money, then a mafia operation responds in the way that mafia operations respond, and and that is a very dangerous thing to do. So, you know, w essentially this will require more than civil society require more than journalism. They're part of the answer, but they don't have the tools to stand up to what are essentially mafia groups. You know, that requires government. And government, you know, 
ideally the most powerful governments that there are, which you know are the, the big Western governments, because it's um, you know, yeah, it, it is great. It is a greater problem than any one of these um, groups can target on their own. Before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called "What We're Reading," where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and might recommend to our listeners. Oliver, what have you been looking at? I am currently reading, I've just finished actually, uh, a book which I'm reviewing. I don't think it's come out just yet. It comes out in a couple of weeks called The Triumph of Injustice by uh, Emmanuel Sayers and Gabriel Zuckman, who are both um, academics at the University of California. It's a study of um, US tax policy in relation to the super rich over the last sort of century or so, um, the change in tax take, the change in enforcement, and the, and the kind of policies that might be required to, to, to sort of try and recapture the super rich in the US tax network. Absolutely fascinating book, um, mercifully brief, very well written, uh, considering the complexity of the subject matter. Um, I've re- no, I really enjoyed it. I found it very informative and also ties into the, the Moneyland argument about the, the misuse of, of offshore jurisdictions in order to hide wealth, in this case, from the IRS. And Shanti, what are you looking at? So my pick is a book. Um, it's not a new book, but it does relate to this topic, and it illuminates the ways that transnational kleptocracy is related to resource extraction in Africa in particular. So the book's name is The Looting Machine, Warlords, Oligarchs, Corporations, Smugglers, and the Theft of Africa's Wealth. And it's written by Tom Burgess of the Financial Times. It traces the global connections between oil, copper, diamonds, and gold, and the global network of traders, bankers, investors, and politicians who power this looting machine described in the title, which effectively impoverishes nations, um, nations that in fact possess vast quantities of wealth, and also enables long-term autocrats to maintain their grip on power. And I'm reading a report released earlier this summer by the International Forum for Democratic Studies here, titled To Catch a Kleptocrat, Lessons Learned from the Bien Malaki Case in France. And the report author Tutu Alicante uses the Bien Malaki case to examine how strategic litigation can be used to important effect in the battle against transnational kleptocracy. And he lays out some of the main takeaways from this effort, especially how civil society can work in a more networked and coordinated way uh, using strategies that can combat the kleptocrats. In this case, it was relevant to the leadership of Equatorial Guinea, but I think it's well worth reading to get a sense of how civil society can leverage the tools at its disposal to feed into law enforcement and the rule of law system in places where it works. Well, we've run out of time for today. I know we've just scratched the surface, but thank you so much, Oliver, for being a guest today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topic we discussed today, we recommend reading Oliver Bullough's book, Moneyland, the inside story of the crooks and kleptocrats who rule the world. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, guest producer Melissa Ayton, and our editing and sound engineer Rochelle Faust, with additional support by Jessica Ludwig. I'm Shanti Kalethal with Chris Walker and Oliver Bullough. 
We hope you enjoyed this discussion on Dictators and Moneyland and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts. Thank you.